The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Chase did a great job last week leading us in our time with a difficult topic, but he, he gave us some really great understanding of how God changed the name of Abram to Abraham and the significance of names and what they meant and that Abraham meant father of nations and that God was blessing him more specifically as he revealed his promises to him. Among other things, he helped us see that the ultimate sign of being a Christ follower is a circumcised heart, a heart that has been changed and is being conformed into the image of Christ. And so helping us realize that and the power of, of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus in our lives who, who really sharpens us and cuts us and really challenges us in our faith to be conformed into that image. Today we'll see more of the covenant uh, and even may, being made more specific specific uh, to Abraham and Sarah. So chapter 17, we'll start in verse 15 is where we'll look uh, So, uh, as we begin. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but your Sarah, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verse 20. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. Verse 21. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So here we go. God declares this promise to Abraham. But he gets more specific. We've been talking about this covenant and these promises over the last few weeks. But here, he gets more specific. And on the heels of changing Abram to Abraham, he changes Sarai to Sarah. And the idea that we see here is that it's a fresh start. That it's a way for them to even reaffirm their commitment and faith in in what God has called them to. And so the idea of this name change is a way for them to continue to follow after God and be faithful to him. Now, right on the heels of that, Abraham doesn't do such a great job. You look at verse 17, God tells him he's going to have a kid, a son, and what does he do? He not only laughs, he falls on his face. Have you ever fallen on your face in laughter? Like, I've fallen out of a chair, I think, but fallen on your face in laughter. I mean, this is emphatic emotion. Like, this God is absolutely crazy. And Abraham reveals how ridiculous he thinks this promise is. And oftentimes we see these characters in the Bible and we judge them. And we say, what a faithless man Abraham was. He saw all this that God had done and uh, God had brought him out and started even to make his nation great in this moment and yet he couldn't believe God could do this. When we stand in judgment, we really should be pointing our fingers at ourselves. You know, not one, we got three pointing back at us. You know, when we point fingers and the idea is we would do the same thing. 
Now, some of you are way more righteous than I am, but I would do the same thing. A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old wife. Is that not humorous at all? (laughs) This is happening right now, and I believe, unfortunately, I would have the same response. I'd fall over laughing. It's interesting. Abraham, he doesn't just laugh, but look at verse 18. He decides, hey, don't you remember, God? I already worked this out for you. Remember my servant girl? Remember Ishmael who was born? I I took care of this for you, God. We never do this, right? We never do this. God has something for us. It's challenging. It's tough. So we work out an easier road. God, I, I took care of it. I got it. And he says here, oh, that Ishmael would stand before you. Hey, remember Ishmael, God? (laughs) It's good. I got a son. And he's going to take us through. And God says, no, you got it wrong, buddy. You think about the pattern in Scripture. Oftentimes in Scripture, if you look in a study, you see that God chooses to use the secondborn. And he goes past the firstborn, or maybe not the secondborn. With David, it was like, how many down the row? He wasn't even in the picture. He was off in the field. And that God chose to use the different uh, orderly things that, that were messed up the order when it came to tradition. And God chose to do it here. God gives this promised one a name. His name was Isaac. What did that mean? Anybody know what his name meant? Good, you get the answer on the screen too. It's laughter. Yeah, there we go. It's laughter. Now, I've heard lots of different, I've read lots of different commentaries on this. I've heard differing opinions on why his name was laughter. Some say, well, Sarah, she was joyful after. They try to spiritualize Abraham and Sarah. His name was laughter, mostly to remind them that they lack faith. And every time they say his name, laughter He's going to remind them, hey, guess what? You didn't believe me, did you? But there's also joy in knowing that the promised one came anyway. You didn't believe and you laughed and you're going to be reminded of that. You're not going to be reminded of it to put you down. You're going to be reminded of it to trust me more and to see that this laughter came and actually embodied a human being. So then he even gets more specific in verse 21. And he says, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Not only does he give him a name now, but then he gives a time frame, which they've been waiting on. Like, God, you promised the son, you promised this. All right, now we have a time frame this time next year. So we're going to jump past the difficult topic that Chase shared with us last week and move into chapter 18. Starting in verse 1, we see this next section. It's a fascinating section about a meaningful meal taking place. Look at verse one of 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, 
If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of the finest flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Verse 8, then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. <clears throat> so it's kind of an interesting thing that's take, taking place here. If you look at uh, verse 1 of that chapter, you see a, a specific place mentioned, the Oaks of Mamre. And if you, if you look and do a little study and, and geography on that, that is a place that was special to Abraham. That was where he split off from Lot and chose a different path and chose a different place. It's also near where he met Melchizedek. And so we see in, in Hebron, this city, that he had this special time. And not only was it special there because he split from a, uh, Lot, but also he had set up an altar to the Lord. So this place was a place of a common meeting place between him and God. So this is where he would go to expect to hear from God and to meet God. Kent Hughes uh, gives us a, a great illustration of this in his book, Genesis, Beginning and Blessing. He says, the sun sat high over Abraham's encampment under the great trees of Mamre outside Hebron. The morning chores were complete. Workers had returned to their tents for the customary siesta. The sheep, donkeys, and camels were clumped under the shade of the trees in midday languor. And Abraham was sitting at the shaded entrance of his tent enjoying his respite. Perhaps he had nodded off because he looked up. He saw three men standing nearby. Abraham had neither seen nor heard their approach. They were simply there looking at him. <clears throat> you, ever, uh, you ever wake up from a nap and have someone staring at you? <laughs> I don't know about you, but that, to me, that's very frightening. <laughs> How long have you been looking at me? What have you been doing to me? Because uh, for me, I would have been drawing on my friends' faces and stuff. But here we see this situation where three men, they just appear. They're not identified. There's no names exchanged. It's just three strangers just appearing to Abraham during siesta time. So we see a response. Now, many of us, we get woken up or we're trying to rest. It's kind of like trying to hurry people along, right? Look, I'm trying to rest. This is time to chill out a little bit. I don't need strangers coming by, you know, looking for things. But here they are. They come and, and Abraham's response is an interesting one. If you see here in uh, these verses, you look and see that Lord is used in verse 3. And it's capital L, but it's lowercase o-r-d. So in this situation, in the beginning, Abraham doesn't see, at least recognize God, but he recognizes that these people are at least worthy of reverence. This is where he plans to meet God. This is where he set up an altar. So he knew some kind of encounter was happening where this was special. But look at his response. First thing he did was he ran to meet them. And if you cheat back a few verses at the end of 17, that passage that Chase had to deal with, remember, the entire male population had just been circumcised. And it does not say any time it passed. It actually says, and the Lord appeared to him. It continues the thought in this passage. So this dude had just been circumcised. He's 100 years old, and he's running to meet these people. 
I, oh man, I can't even go on after that. The idea is <clears throat> his reverence and his awe o- overshadowed any pain he was feeling and his age that he was feeling at the moment, and he ran. I don't know if you ever Googled or YouTubed 100-year-old sprinters. <laughs> I did that this week. I'm not showing it on the screen because if you're like me, you would be done for the sermon and not think about anything else except even some of you are imagining it right now. I should, maybe I should have shown it, but it's awesome. Now, some of these dudes are beasts. They're, they're 100 years old, and they're going down the track, legitimate track suits. I mean, it's one dude had a coach. It was crazy. But this guy ran at 100 years old, And having an infirmity, and here he is running. Not only does he run, but what does he do? He bows in reverence. He bows in reverence, and then he requests that he can serve them. Now, back then, you know, the custom would have been for the patriarch, the man, right, to snap his fingers. Hey, go get this. Go get these guys some water. What are you doing standing around there, right? Go get him some water. Go get him some milk. Hook him up with some cakes. And Abraham's like, may I serve you? Please stay for a little while so that I can show compassion to you. This is Abraham. And then not only did he ran to meet them, then it says he went quickly. So he gets up off his knees, talks to them, and runs to Sarah. And says, Sarah, prepare a ton of flour and all these cakes to welcome these men. And even if you look at the translation and look at uh, how things were measured back back then, the amount of flour is estimated to be anywhere from 15 to 30 pounds of flour that he asked her to prepare. And these cakes, they were were a common thing for people to use to entertain, uh, whether it's friends, family, or strangers. So if he stopped there, it would have been like a normal thing, uh, kind of, except for Abraham doing it and not his servants. But then not only does that, he goes and gets a calf and he kills the calf and then he serves it. And you see Abraham's servant's heart as well in this in that he didn't sit down to eat with them. Most of the time that patriarch would be down sitting with them at this meal, but yet he stood by and let them enjoy their meal. So here's Abraham's response in the opportunity for hospitality. Reminds me of these verses in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You ever experienced this? You've talked to somebody or you've had a meal with someone or you just encountered someone on the street and you're always suddenly like, wow, that was crazy. I've experienced some of that in Rwanda, going over there and just talking to people and just seeing things happen and you're just like, What was that? And in this situation, here's Abraham responding in a way that is this servant's heart. Well, as you can see on the slide, we have our common response, right? Opportunity for hospitality comes our way. Maybe we were resting. Maybe we were just going to enjoy the weekend and not be bothered by other people, right? And just enjoy our downtime. Not that that's wrong. But people come along, they're needy. They need something from us. They need to be uh, encouraged. They need to be welcomed in for a meal or, or just a listening ear. And what do we do? 
Like Chase said last week, we interrogate God. We just ask a bunch of questions. Do they really need this now? Why can't that wait? Do they really need to talk right this minute? Do I have to prepare a meal now? We just got through hosting small group and now you're asking me to do this? And our response oftentimes is questions and also this nonchalant attitude toward worship where it's just like, eh, I'll take it or leave it, eh, whatever. Instead of this reverence and then Instead of saying, what can we do for this person God has brought to us? It's like, well, I want to know what can they do for me? We take this similar attitude to church. What can this church do for me? And we start church hopping because we have this issue in our lives where it's about us for some reason and not about others. That God has given us the opportunity to be hospitable to others it's not about how comfortable the seats are or what the music is like or with the weirdos that get up here on the stage like me preaching, you know. It's about us serving other people and loving others and being an example of the gospel, a physical example of the gospel. And oftentimes, unlike Abraham, moving he moved quickly and ran. We often just drag our feet. God, are you really asking me to do this? Christian Farms Treehouse, really? And some of you were convicted even there by being involved in something. And you just thought of a million excuses as God's telling you what to do of how you can't do it. And why your life is so busy that you can't be hospitable. And it's a challenge that I don't just say from the stage to you, it's for me too. Because I often do this and I take this opposite attitude. But Abraham, what a great example. And this week as I studied this, the conclusion God brought me to was that there shouldn't be any wasted meals. So many times in my own family and maybe with friends, it's just like, let's get together. And you just, you hang out and that's great. But you don't see that there's actually something spiritual about being together. When you are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, there's this spiritual nature of gathering together. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, the eat with him part doesn't seem to fit. I'll come in him and I will be with him and maybe guide him and direct him, but eat with him? What, is, what does that even mean? And why would he say that? And why would he include that in this crucial scripture? There's an author, Ray Stedman, that gives us a better insight on that. He says, when he says, eat with me, he says, that is, we will fellowship together. We will have dinner together. This is not simply private enjoyment, not just a social hour for our own pleasure. This is a picture of the Lord using us as an instrument to meet the need of those around. And in so doing, we enter into fellowship with the heart of Christ. When Christ comes into us, he doesn't come in merely to give us a good time, to bless us, and make it an enjoyable experience. He comes in to fulfill his long-standing desire to be what he came into this world to be. A savior to seek and to save that which was lost, to give and show compassion to others, and to minister to human needs, whatever they may be, through us. We get to be the community. 
we get to be the avenue that we get to eat with others and in eating with others, we actually show that we have fellowship with Jesus by being hospitable, by sharing our simple, just simply sharing our food. We see this principle, we don't have time to get into it, we'd be a whole nother sermon, but all over Matthew 25. You can write that down to read it later. Matthew 25 talks about Jesus. And he's saying, you did all these things, all these things I needed. I was poor, I was in prison, I was naked, I was hungry, I was thirsty. And what did you do? Nothing. Wait, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you naked? When you saw the needs of the least of these and you didn't to them, you didn't do it to them, then you didn't do it to me. This principle is a powerful one, and Abraham shows this great example. And I got some pictures that were sent to me. I asked some people to send me some pictures of their small group for, as an example of this. So I got a few examples of this. I think there's gingerbread houses going on over there on the left. Uh, then we got some fellowship happening here, apparently a 28th birthday. It's a long time ago for me. Uh, and then we got some other you know, pictures. That, and all these pictures, and I could just show you a bunch more, just the idea of people coming together to eat with one another, but not just to eat with one another, but it is, it is wholly centered around Jesus. And so that even in the meal, it's, a, it's, a, it's specifically designed to remember Jesus. And I know some of you got young kids and you're like, I can't have people over. Most of the time when we have people over, my youngest son greets them out the door down the sidewalk in his underwear. And it's amazing. But that just happens. But it doesn't mean we can't have them over. It's just chaos. And it's great. And so for us, it's an opportunity to see our imperfections, to see what we lack, and to see that we don't have it all together, even though we clean up right before everybody gets here. And we actually just host people in community and we're part of the body and we represent that. And that's what Abraham did. But then the last section here in verse nine gives us a really powerful question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Look at verse nine. They said to him, where is, your, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. What a humorous situation there. If you remember, two weeks ago, Dave reminded us from Hebrews 11, it says that basically Abraham was as good as dead. Like, I imagine, like, even in this verse, my weird imagination, like, pictures him when he was running to the people like dust was falling off him because he was so old. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just this picture I get, like, the guy was as good as dead. And even with, with uh, Sarah, this, this situation wasn't good. But if you notice here in verse 9, the use of the word LORD is all caps. L-O-R-D. 
And this is where Abraham and, and Moses, who's writing this, they give us this understanding that the Lord is identified, that he is there. Because they said in verse 9, where is Sarah your wife? And he said she is in the tent. Then the Lord said, capital L-O-R-D. So he's there. We don't know if it was one of these three or if it was God and the three. It's not in the text. You can't say either way for certain. But God is there. And so they say, where is Sarah your wife? It's kind of an interesting thing to include Sarah in this whole story and in this conversation, in this moment, is crucial. That was unheard of in that culture. And even in the Middle East today, it's unheard of to have a woman in the presence of men while they're eating. And especially not to ask for her, to ask specifically about her specific Sarah, where is she? The fact that God's promise to Abraham was also God's promise to Sarah is so, so crucial. If you go back to Genesis 12 and you saw Abraham being deceitful and he's trying to get through this situation where he's trying to pass through this country and he comes up on it and what does he do? <clears throat> he says, Sarah, oh, she's my sister because I might be killed. So you can be my sister. And then Sarah gets taken and what happens? All these plagues start to happen. That moment there shows you that Sarah was important. That it wasn't the promise just to Abraham, but the promise wasn't just to any woman with Abraham. It was them together, equal in promise. Equal in this opportunity to see the blessing fulfilled. And so God values this woman and he values you as women out there. And the reality is, when it's a promise to Tim that God gives, it's an equal promise to Candace, my wife. When God calls you to serve together, he calls you both. And he calls you as a blessing to be together in serving others and, and sharing the love of Jesus. God always views women differently than the culture. He always does, and he's always had this high view of women, and you see that in this promise to Abraham and Sarah together as a team. So in verse 10, God gives even more specifics beyond the name, and he says it will happen within a year, just like he did in 1721. And then we see the writer here, Moses, inserting a reminder of the barren state of Sarah. In case you missed it, right? Just in case you missed it, let's look at it. It says, uh, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So here we are. She's advanced in years. It's just, and then you go on. She says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old. <laughs> just in case you didn't see this as impossible. She is worn out. <laughs> not having children, no, not happening. It's interesting, God got her to that point. So God clears this up for them. In verse 14, after their laughter, what does he say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Reminds me of a passage in scripture I got to share up here on the stage, I don't know how many years ago, but Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, Moses is dealing with the Israelites once again. 
over and over and over again. They're questioning God. They're just really annoying. And God's, ba- I mean, Moses is basically like, just kill me now. It's really what the translation probably could be, kill me now. And <clears throat> he says, this is scripture that, that is powerful. It says, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my Lord, my, excuse me, my uh, word will come true for you or not. Now, Candace and I felt this way. Back when uh, I, I was hesitating to even include this because it's like tears already start coming up. Just go show the picture because I'm, if I see it, I'm going to have to look down. So this is my... Uh, It's my oldest daughter. And uh, we waited. We waited a while for her. And to some of you, you know, it, it's not that long of a time, but it was a couple of years, it was over three years that we waited and we prayed and asked God and we, we thought, oh, we gotta have this little one and we're so excited. And then it just was this process of testing and all these different things and even a surgery for Candace and all this stuff. It was tough. And then this little bundle of joy comes by. She comes here to this earth and it's just such a blessing. But that was just three years and some of you are experiencing that even on a deeper level. Some of you, I, I got to be part of the, the Hope Mommies 5K race yesterday. And thankfully I survived. But that race was just so powerful when it, it featured moms who have lost babies. And some of you out there have lost little ones. And you've waited and waited and waited and it's just so difficult. And this is Sarah. The whole fulfillment of a woman back then was to have children and she's 90. And here's God saying to her, you're gonna have a kid. I'm 90, I'm old. Abraham and I, we leave a dust trail when we walk. I am old and here, God is saying, is anything too hard for me? And God reaffirms the promise to her. <laughs> and she says, I didn't laugh. No, no, you did. Any parents out there have your kid do something right in front of your face and you know they did it? <laughs> and, and they say, no, I didn't. <laughs> How bold is that? I know I did it as a kid too, but... How bold is that? But here's Sarah over off to the side. She's over here in the tent door. She's not near them. They can't even see her. And here she is chuckling to herself. And it wasn't like a chuckle like, oh, it's finally going to happen. This is so exciting. It's a chuckle like, there's no way. There's no way. It's not possible. And what does he do? He reaffirms that and says his name's going to be Isaac. And you laughed, and I'll have the last laugh because you're gonna see him within a year. You're gonna see him. And if you wanna jump ahead because we're not getting to Genesis 21 till after Christmas, Genesis 21, here's the verse six says, now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. They're not just laughing because it's funny, they're laughing because God provided in a miraculous way. So as we conclude, I, I read a sermon from John Piper and basically his conclusion is set on that sermon and comes from that. 
He says, why? Why did God wait so long to give the promised child? According to Genesis 11.30, Sarah had always been barren, even during her childbearing years. Now she was beyond childbearing years. Therefore, now and only now is the time for the covenant child to be born, when all human resources are exhausted, when Abraham and Sarah reduced to laughter at the sheer incredibility of it all. Now God gives the promise, unlike all human promises, a promise that carries the power of his own fulfillment. And Piper goes on to say, God waits until it is humanly impossible for the child of the covenant to be born in order to show that it is not by human effort that covenant people will be created. It is a work of divine and sovereign grace. The formation of a people of God for the sake of his name from all the families of the earth is not a human creation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You jump ahead to the birth of Messiah the birth of Jesus himself. And he says, I'll even one-up you, Sarah. I'm gonna bring my son from a virgin. And he's gonna come and be the savior of the world and he's gonna conquer death and conquer the grave. And it's gonna be, in your eyes, impossible. So Piper goes on to say, did God bring forth a child of the covenant from fertile Hagar or barren Sarah? Did God bring forth Jesus from Mary to Elizabeth or the Virgin Mary? Did he save you from unbelief by your own power or his? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Think about that. Think about the challenge of being hospitable and the example of Abraham. And some of you think, man, that's just too hard. Some of us, we need, we need to bend our knees and just pray and ask God to give us this heart of hospitality to a community that needs us and needs to see God's power at work in our lives. But then some of you in this room, you're going through things that you really do believe. This is too hard. It's been years upon years upon years of addiction or brokenness and difficulty in a marriage or tough times with a child or a grown kid and you're just saying it's done, it's too hard for God. And God is saying through this passage, no, there is nothing too hard for God. Let's pray. Dear God, Thankful for your love for us. Thankful for your son, Jesus. Thankful for the example of Abraham, that even though he did doubt, he's not perfect. He doubted. He had his lack of faith, even laughing. But even in those moments of doubting, he showed hospitality. He loved these strangers. He took care of them and showed your love to them. Lord, and as we think about whether anything's too hard for you, we see this miracle take place a 90-year-old woman having a son and him being the one who the coming Messiah, Jesus, your son, would come. I pray that we're encouraged by that today. We're challenged by that to know you more, to trust you. And as we finish up with this last song and worship, Lord, just uh, bless us as we continue to worship you and to consider what the words are to this song to encourage us and push us to know you more. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. It's just a pleasure and honor to be with you guys here this morning. I want to share a song that I have not released yet. It's a brand new song that I wrote whenever I was touring earlier this year. But I wrote it from Exodus 14 where it says that God will fight for you. It says, I will fight for you. 
So I don't know what you came through these doors with today on your shoulders. I don't know what, you're, what battle you're fighting right now, but I want to let you know that it's not yours to fight. It's his. Our battle looks like this. It looks like surrender, where we lift it up to him. This song's called Fighting on My Behalf. The storm is raging. I find myself in the middle of the deep wide ocean. The deep wide ocean. The waves are crashing. The waves are crashing on me and I can't catch my breath, no. Can't catch my breath, no. In this season, I will find you when I seek you with all I have. In this battle, I will trust you because I know that you're fighting on my behalf. Whoa, whoa. You're fighting on my behalf. It's I'm feeling helpless when I should be standing strong yeah. Standing strong yeah. I'm taking fire I'm needing you to make things right from what seems wrong yeah. From what seems wrong yeah. In this season I will find you and I seek you with all I have In this battle I will trust you because I know That you're fighting on my behalf Fighting on my behalf is oh, oh, oh. I trust you will trust you I will trust you Cause you're fighting for me and I will trust you Trust you, I will trust you. Cause you're fighting for me, and I will trust you. Will trust you, I will trust you. Cause you're fighting for me, and I will trust you. Will trust you, I will trust you. Cause you're fighting for me. You're fighting on my behalf. Whoa, whoa. You're fighting on my behalf. Whoa, whoa. You're fighting on my behalf.